Awesome. Father, we thank you for your word, and we just ask your blessing upon this time, Father. And Lord, with such a topic as this, we recognize, Lord, that um, you want to speak into our lives this morning. And so, Father, I pray that we would be open to receive what you have to speak to us, what you have to say to us through your word. And Father, I just pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning. And so, Father, may we walk away having an understanding of this topic on a deeper level so that, Lord, we would walk in the victory that you have secured for us, not walking in defeat, not being tripped and bamboozled by the enemy. And so bless this time, Lord, as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. So Paul is leaving the topic that we've been on for the last two weeks as we went through 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, talking about money. And now we just totally turn a page and we go into another topic, that of spiritual warfare, something that we all experience. There was a group of individuals in the city of Corinth who were accusing Paul of things that he was not guilty of. They were assigning motives to him. They were trying to rally people onto their side of understanding for whatever reason. And so Paul, um, in this chapter, begins to let them know that they need to be very careful of that because he does have authority given to him by God in this arena. So let's take a look at it. We're going to kind of focus in on a few verses because they're so powerful. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1, the Bible says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. And so Paul starts the chapter out again, turning a page, moving on to an entirely new topic, but he's letting them know, letting them know that I'm coming at you in humility. I'm coming at you in meekness. I'm coming under you to let you know that I don't want to be bold on a level that I can be bold on when I am in your presence. And I think that's very important. He does have the authority. He's an apostle. He was called by God to do what he did. He was the one that was there when the Corinthians gave their lives to the Lord. He was the one that God used as their spiritual father to be able to see them come to faith in Christ. And yet you've got this group who is saying that he's one thing when he's not with us, but he's a whole other thing when he comes and he meets us. And his letters, they're hardcore, but his presence isn't that impressive. Now in history, 2nd century AD, it is noted that Paul wasn't a very good-looking, tall, dark, and handsome kind of guy. In fact, it says that he's short, he had a voice that cracked, and he had a big nose. And so they're using his physical stature and his letters in contrast, and they're 
looking at life under the sun, if you will, on the horizontal plane and saying, yeah, he ain't all that. Paul's not all that. And he's going to let them know in the next chapter as well, he's going to let them know definitively that his authority comes from God. But notice his approach. He's telling them, I'm coming to you in meekness. And meekness is power under control. It's, it's uh, Jesus in his only autobiographical statement of himself would say that I am lowly and meek. He's mild in nature. And so to recognize who you are in God and to not have to, I don't know, with that authority, let people know where you're coming from is a pretty attractive attribute. And Paul is possessing it here. Now, the next four verses we're going to spend a little time on because they are powerful verses. Remember the context of what we're reading. Verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Remember the context of what we're reading. Paul is coming to a group that is in the city of Corinth that are saying lies, saying things about him, trying to create divisions, schisms within the church there, and bringing people onto their side of being against Paul. And Paul now reminds them, hey guys, our battle is not physical. We're in a battle. There's a war that's taking place, but it's not physical. I believe that the overwhelming of majority of Christians don't understand the level and the degree of this spiritual battle. And I think the enemy has bamboozled us into thinking that our fight is in the physical realm. And you see it everywhere. And Paul is reminding us here that our battle isn't physical. When he says, though we walk in the flesh, notice again in verse 4, he'll say, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. He's saying flesh and carnal are synonyms of one another. And so, yes, we're walking in a physical way with a physical body in a physical world, but we're not walking in a carnal way. Way. And to walk carnal, I'll take you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul would use that word carnal four times, and he's kind of defining it for us here, at least in the context of 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4. Let me read it to you. And I ask the question Can a Christian be carnal? And what does that mean? And the answer to that is yes, a Christian can be carnal. Because who is Paul writing to in 1 Corinthians? He's writing to the church in Corinth. He's talking to Christians. And so he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Four times 
in those three small verses, four, four verses, he's mentioning the word carnal. And so carnals, carnal can be babes in Christ in verse 1. Or brand new Christians, individuals that they haven't learned, they haven't matured, they haven't grown up in the things of God. And so they're learning those things. And, and sometimes you're relying, you're leaning on the arm of your own understanding, of your own flesh, of what, you know, worldly wisdom, worldly knowledge that you've gained in your life. And so in one sense, a babe in Christ or a new convert, a new Christian can be a, a carnal. Number two, carnal in verse two, he says, not able to handle mature things. And so we learn to handle mature things by sitting under the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and that by hearing the word of God. As we sit under the word of God, what's happening? The renewing of our mind begins to take place as it says in Romans chapter 12 verse 2. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The renewing of your mind as you sit under the word. Number three in verse three, he says, envy, strife, divisions are carnal. And then in verse 3, he goes on to say, behaving like mere men is carnal. And so a carnal Christian is a Christian that is maybe a new convert, not able to handle mature things, is into envy and strife and divisions and all of these, again, things, life under the sun. Remember Solomon writing in the book of Ecclesiastes, trying to understand life apart from God under the sun, S-U-N. In life on earth from the horizontal plane without being mindful of spiritual things. And he concludes vanity of vanities, vexation of soul, soap bubbles, that word could be translated. Emptiness. Here today and gone tomorrow, soap bubble. Life under the sun without God, without Christ ruling and reigning in your life. And then behaving like mere men. No difference from us and the world that we see that don't have access to God and the truth of God and the renewing of our minds that God desires to do. Ravi Zacharias, one of my favorite, no, my single favorite speaker that is alive right now. (laughs) Ravi Zacharias, incredible mind that God has blessed him with. Gave his life to the Lord at 17, 18 years old after trying to commit suicide in a hospital bed and finally committed his life to the Lord. And said, Lord, if this is true, I will dedicate my life to searching it out and sharing it with others. Just an incredible person. He said, this culture, this culture that we're living in is thinking with their eyes and hearing with their feelings. This culture that we're living in is thinking with their eyes and hearing with their feelings. And so they've already lost not recognizing that there's a battle that's raging. There's warfare that's taking place. And so for you, Christian, and me as a Christian, we need to recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our fight is not with a person. Our fight is not with a group of people. Our fight is not with a group of protesters or an individual in office. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against powers and principalities, rulers of darkness. And we need to be careful to understand that. If we were to look at these verses, the first one in verse three, it says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war 
according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lists the kind of spiritual weapons he did use. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. To rely on these weapons took faith in God instead of carnal methods. But truly these weapons are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What is a stronghold? I think the context of this verse is going to let us know that a, that a stronghold is a lie or a misunderstanding about God or God's word in your life. All of us have strongholds. I used to think a stronghold was some like boogeyman, demonic thing. You know, you see him when it comes around the corner. Whoa, strongholds, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, you stronghold. I rebuke you, right? What is that? Well, how would that affect me or be bad or or negative? That's not what a stronghold is. A stronghold is a lie or a misrepresentation of the truth that I have in my own mind. Where does that come from? It can come from anywhere. It comes from my past. It it comes from a lie that the enemy fed me. It it comes from deception And we are no battle for the enemy. He way outsmarts us on this stuff. And I think part of his strategy is to get us to think that our fight is in the physical realm with people. We've already lost if we think that our fight is with people. I've experienced an interesting week. On Sunday, my wife and I having a dialogue, communicating with one another. And she had said something. I was kind of like, huh, okay. And then Monday, as as I was thinking about it, I kind of go to her and I was like, hey, that thing that you said yesterday, just want to throw this out there, just, it's kind of how I perceive that. And what she heard is not what I said. And what she heard is not what I meant to say. And so I got to sleep on the couch, just saying. So Sunday, I hear something. Monday, I clarify it. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, it's not bueno in the household. Just saying. So there we are, like two ships passing by one another in the sea of life. And we are strangers living under the same roof and experiencing this incredible misunderstanding of what had taken place. And yesterday, woo, thank you for Saturday, Jesus, we were finally able to resolve it. And what is it but spiritual warfare? It's a battle that's taking place. But I know my honey, we've been married 31 years, you know what I'm saying? And I know that once I cross the barrier of what I did not mean to say, but somehow she heard, I was speaking in blue, she was listening in pink. That's just all I can say if you've read the book, (laughs) then you know what I'm talking about. But I did not mean to say whatever it was she heard, but I know her, she needs space and time now, and nothing I can say is going to fix it. I want to fix it, but nothing I say is going to fix it. And on reflection, I recognize, oh, 
We're doing spiritual warfare. (laughs) I get it, Jesus. You're teaching me spiritual warfare in my house. Got it, okay. I share that with you to let you know that we're all in this together, that we all struggle, that we all have these misunderstandings and these things that the enemy loves to just get in and create and reap havoc. At some point, though, we got to take a step back and we got to recognize my battle is not physical. My battle is not with a person. My struggle is a spiritual one. And even if I need to learn how to say things better or withhold certain things that I'm saying just because I got to let you know, yeah, that didn't go good for me. So hopefully I'm learning. Yeah, dude, you better be careful. Even how you communicate truth, just because it's truth, there's a way to communicate it in a way that would be perceived because this one, your better half, has a way of perceiving certain things and she'll let you know. She's not a happy camper. So even in that, there's a growing, there's a learning, there's a maturing, there's a moving forward in the things of God, but we have to recognize that our struggle and our battles are not with people. Even in that realm right there that I just expressed to you. The Corinthian Christians tended to rely on and admire carnal weapons for the Christian battle. Instead of the belt of truth, they fought with manipulation. Instead of the breastplate of righteousness, they fought with the image of success. Instead of the shoes of the gospel, they fought with smooth words. Instead of the shield of faith, they fought with perception of power. Instead of the helmet of salvation, they fought with lording over authority. And instead of the sword of the spirit, they fought with human schemes and programs. And so we can win in the temporal realm using carnal methods, but we're not going to win for very long. Because God is not pleased ultimately, and because we reap what we sow. And if we sow to the flesh... The Bible guarantees that we're going to reap corruption. And it'll simply be a matter of time before those seeds begin to reap a harvest. Jesus relied on spiritual weapons when he fought for our salvation. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it describes this. The Bible says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This kind of victory through humble obedience offended the Corinthian Christians because it seems so weak. The carnal human way is to overpower and dominate, manipulate and outmaneuver The spiritual Jesus way is to humble yourself, die to yourself, and let God show his resurrection power through you. And so though fighting in a carnal way may look good in the moment, that's not how Jesus did it. That's not how he gained our victory. And so he may have from the outside looked weak, but that weakness was nothing more than meekness, power under control. And what did it secure? It secured your salvation. And so as you grow older, God is calling you to grow up. God is calling you to mature. 
God is calling you to walk by faith and trust him. God is calling you to take him at his word. And that takes faith. And you're either going to exercise faith or you're not and postpone your growth. Doesn't mean God's mad at you, but God really does want to see you win and get the victory in these areas of your life. He goes on casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God in verse 5. And so these arguments and these high things are spiritual things, demonic things. So that stronghold that is resurrected in my mind of a lie or, I don't know, um, an adulterating of the truth, a, a masking, taking away or adding to God and who he is and what he wants to do in your life, God's not mad at you. God loves you. God loves you so much. It's like when I think about the love of God that he has for us, it just, if the whole world knew how much God loves us and what he has in store for us and what he wants to do, but there's this spiritual battle that's taking place and God will wait you out. God is not raising spoiled, rotten brats and he'll let you have your little tantrum on the supermarket floor as you're kicking and screaming and he wants no part of that. He, he loves you. He'll watch you do it. How's that working out for you? And he'll wait you out. And there have been so many people that I've counseled in their lives. And I'm looking across, and I'm just looking at this person. I'm like, wow, Lord, they're not ready, huh? They're not ready. Yeah, they're going to still go further backwards before they get it, huh, Lord? And God is just that loving and gracious to respect your free will. But at some point, I love that scripture in 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I spoke as a child and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things away. And God is wanting us to mature. And God is wanting us to grow in these things and in these areas. The enemy doesn't have anything good planned in store for you. All those D words is what the enemy has. He wants to see you depressed. He wants to see you discombobulated. He wants to see you down. He wants to see you destroyed. He wants to see you dead. All of these D words that you can think of is what the enemy wants for you. And you think you're smarter than God? God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You're not smarter than God. You can't outsmart God. And I think with that foundational understanding that God loves me, And God's will for me is a good thing. At some point, we're going to want to participate and cooperate with that more and more, or we're going to give God the Heisman, and we're going to walk away, and we're going to do our own thing, and then God will be there to pick up the pieces. And this is how I see it. I see his eternal broom and his eternal dustpan, and he picks up the broken pieces of your heart, and he puts them in his dustpan, and then he puts them back together. You don't have to grow through that level of grief. You really don't. But you can, and God loves you so much, he'll let you. But in a world where where Ravi Zacharias says this culture is thinking with their eyes and hearing with their feelings, do you recognize that we are a subculture of the culture? And the church has lost the understanding that we're in a spiritual battle? And most churches won't mention hell in church? Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. 
and we're so consumed with our own lives that there's a world that's going to hell in a handbasket around us and many of us don't even care. In the last verse that we read, he says, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed the one before that. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So you and I have a thought life. And the enemy shoots fiery darts into your thoughts. Can he read your thoughts? Who cares? A lot of people ask that question. Well, can you read my thoughts? I better not think it. You're not going to think. Who cares? Who cares? You have a God that is over the enemy. But he does shoot his fiery darts into your mind. And so we give in to that. And before you know it, okay, for those of you who are overthinkers, I feel sorry for you. Let's pray for them. Okay, because you overthink yourself into oblivion. Because you're having a conversation in your head and you don't realize that the seed that was planted in that thought was the enemy and then you just run with it. And the enemy's like, i got to get out of here. They're, they got it themselves. And he just leaves you alone and now your thought life is wreaking havoc on you and you're just like overwhelmed and consumed. He's saying bringing every thought into captivity to obedience. Do you see that? And this is how I learned to do that. I was on the pitcher's mound. I've shared this story before. And this guy was mad dogging me as I was on the pitcher's mound. And I have the ball in my hand. And I'm thinking, why is he mad dogging me? I got the ball right here, right? And so I'm thinking, I'm going to throw this at your face. Ha, 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 right? I got the ball. 60.6 feet away from this guy with a baseball. And I'm going to throw it in his face because he's mad dogging me. Mad dogging is like giving you that look, like whatever, right? That stank face, right? And God taps me on the shoulder and says, Johnny, what are you doing? I'm playing baseball, Lord. I'm going to throw this ball at this dude's face because he's mad dogging me. And God said to me, if you cannot glorify me in this game, I will pull you out of the game. I love baseball. And I love to play baseball. And I didn't want God to pull me out of baseball. And I don't know what that meant. Like God was going to give me a broken leg or something. I don't know what that meant. But I didn't want to not play baseball. I wanted to keep playing baseball. So what I did was I took two verses. I took this verse taking every thought captive to obedience of Christ. And I took that verse in 2 Thessalonians that says, pray without ceasing. And I began to make my thought life a prayer life. So I began to talk to God. Hey, God. Dude's mad dogging me, huh? He's looking crazy, huh? Lord, let's strike him out. Yeah. Okay, Lord, I'm going to throw it. Curve. Outside corner, he's going to swing and whiff at it. Let's do this, but you got to help me, Lord, because I don't know if I can get it right there. I want it right there to look like a fastball, and then just tell away, Lord, help me, right? And here we go. And then if we strike him on, I'd be like, yeah, Jesus, woo, right? And so little by little, through the discipline of making my thought life, instead of random thoughts, and now I'm talking to myself, and ooh, suckers, and ooh, I'm going to get them, and all this. Whoa, 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 where are you, where, where are you going with that? Where, how'd you... Whoa, you're going to kill people and stab people and shank them? No, where are you, right? Now your thought life becomes a prayer life and you're communing with God. And I think that's an incredible discipline. And it doesn't work perfect because every once in a while I'm off and I'm like, whoa, whoa, Lord, where'd you go? (laughs) I left you out. Sorry about that. Got to bring you back in, okay? If we are to pray without ceasing, what does that mean? And if we're to take every thought captive to obedience, what does that mean? And so I think it's a very practical thing. And I think that we can surrender this to the Lord. 
As we go on, verse 7, he says, Do not look, do you look at the things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. We're on the same team, Paul is letting them know. If you belong to Jesus, we belong to Jesus. We're on the same team. There's no competition. Why would you be against me? You should want to see Christians do well. You should want to see Christians succeed. We should want to see the church across the street prosper and be blessed and grow and be teaching the sheep. So there's no competition. Verse 9, 8. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for, the edif- for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present and so yes there were these people that were saying in presence he's nothing but his letters are real powerful paul is saying i can be bold i can be bold when i come to you because god gave me that authority but why did he give me that authority to lord it over you no to edify you to build you up to make sure that you're encouraged verse 12 for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Who are those in the Bible that compare themselves to one another? Religious hypocrites, the Pharisees. And he's saying these people aren't wise. Remember Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Notice the comparison. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the religious hypocrite that compares himself to others. And so these people were doing that, and Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. We're not going to compare ourselves to others. It's not wise, he says at the end of that verse. 13 to the end. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you, for we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall greatly enlarge by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. And so Paul concludes this chapter by saying they have a sphere. 
And we're not going to interrupt or intermingle. We're not going to try to go where another man has a work. A sphere is nothing more than a circle. And your sphere and my sphere is anybody who comes into your life is within your sphere, your realm of ministry. Your neighbor is anybody who comes into that circle, into your presence. Wherever you go, you're a minister, a minister of the gospel. And so Paul is saying, we're not going to mess with another man's sphere. We're going to let them do that, but we're going to have our own. And then he says, he who glories, it's not you're glorying in yourself, but we're going to glory in the Lord. That comes from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. The Bible says, for thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. And so if there's a glory, if there's something we're going to commend, if you will, on ourselves, it's, yeah, the Lord found me. My name is written in the book of life. I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did for me. That's our glory. As I was reading through this chapter throughout the week, the Lord brought a couple verses to mind. One was Isaiah 54, verse 17, where the Bible says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servant of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Are you aware that there is nothing that can come against you that the enemy can prosper in? The enemy has assignments on you. The enemy wants to see you defeated. The enemy wants to see you destroyed. The enemy wants to see you dead. But no weapon formed against you shall prosper and in that take hope the same trial the same tribulation the same struggle that the enemy means to destroy you God means to build you up God means to get you to the next phase to the next step God is doing a work in you so that he would do a work through you God is on his J-O-B as it relates to your life he's not sadistic wishing pain in your life for nothing to no avail. He is not the author of the pain in your life, but he will use it for his glory in your life. Recognizing that there's a spiritual battle, understanding that God has something to teach you. You have to participate with God. Don't don't keep him out. Don't hold him back. Say, Lord, oh boy, Lord, I am not getting this. Lord, I need you. Help me understand. What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to grow through through this? And the Lord may say, not now, son or daughter, but you will know. You will know definitively at some point. And oftentimes, it's, it's, it's in this life. There a situation will come. Something will happen. Somebody will be in front of you. They will be talking. And woo, all those years ago, when you went through that thing, boom, this moment. Lord, this moment? This is it, Lord. This is why you, oh, Lord, you are so good. Lord, so that I can uniquely understand their pain, their struggle, what they're not understanding. Oh, I see it, okay. And then you're able to minister in a way that you never would have ministered. I think of the disciples in the boat. Hey, guys. Get in the boat, and we're going to go to the other side. And then the storm comes, and it's a demonic storm. And the storm comes. And then all of a sudden, 
They're like, see Jesus walking on water, right? They're like, who, this is disciples, who is this who commands the sea? I didn't know him like this. I didn't know he could calm the sea. I had to go through the storm to see him in a different light so that I can be that much more impressed with my God. Wow, Lord, you even calm this. I don't even know who you are. I don't even know who you are, Jesus. How are you going to know he calms the storm unless you go through the storm and you need the storm calmed? And he wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to show you more and new and better and bigger aspects that you never would have known. The other verse that I thought of, and this is maybe just me personally, so I'll give it to you, but you can definitely apply it if you'd like. Jeremiah 12, 5. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? Just the first part of that verse. And this is what the Lord spoke to me. Johnny, you can't jog. How are you going to run? You're getting tired. You're wearied with footmen. How are you going to keep up with the horses? Do you know what I have for you in the future? There's a preparation that's taking place in your life. I'm conditioning you. I'm teaching you endurance. I'm giving you patience. All of these things that you need down there How are you going to have it down there if you can't hang right here? You hang right here by looking to me. You hang right here by depending upon me. You hang right here by trusting in me. I'm not allowing this pain in your life for nothing. It's a preparation process. And I know I'm over you. I see the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Let me be God. Let me do what I'm doing. But you got to keep up, son. Come on. Let's go. I go before you. There's nothing you go through that I don't see. But you got to keep up. Don't throw the towel in. Don't quit. Don't lie down. Come on. How are you going to keep up with the horses if you can't run with the footmen? What a powerful thing just this week as I'm looking at warfare and what the Lord is showing me through this chapter. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you that we can learn so much of you and your ways. And Lord, if nothing else, I pray that we would recognize that we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, rulers of darkness. And Lord, it's through the mind gate, just the enemy shooting those fiery darts and using, Lord, our weakness, using our insecurities, using our doubts, to be able to bring these things. And so, Father, may we run to you. May we look to you. May we bask in the finished work of the cross. May we know that you have secured our salvation, that it's a done deal. To Talistite is finished, paid in full. And from that perspective, recognizing, Lord, that your will for our life is good and it's acceptable and it's perfect. And may that be our desire, Lord as we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word and just continue to have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.